Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global debate. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record, then used as background for my columns. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record, so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. One of the political books I've most enjoyed this year is called The Light That Failed, A Reckoning. It's about the backlash against liberal democracy across the world, and it's by Stephen Holmes of New York University and Ivan Krestov, a Bulgarian academic and writer. I find Ivan's perspective particularly interesting because of his deep knowledge of Central Europe, the part of the world where communism crumbled in 1989, but which is now experiencing a backlash against some of the liberal ideas that appeared to have triumphed when the Berlin Wall came down. So, at a recent conference in Germany, I took the opportunity to sit down with Ivan Krestev, who explained to me how things have changed since the apparent triumph of liberal democracy. The story was that in 1989, as a result of something that nobody expected, the sudden collapse of communism, we got the feeling that we know how the future is going to look like. And I do believe this kind of a certainty that we know how the world is going to look like in 20, 25, 30 years has collapsed. And this is where this kind of a new sense of anxieties and uncertainty is coming back because there was a strong deterministic kind of a trend of thinking after 1989. And if we're talking about, in my view, one most important delusion of this period, it was the expectations that the East is going to change while the West is going to remain the same. Yeah, and in the book, you focus in particular on three regions, Central Europe, Russia, and the US. And Central Europe, I think, is often neglected in the debate. And in a way, that's curious, isn't it? Because that's where it happened. That's where history was meant to have ended, the Berlin Wall fell, and so on. So explain to me why what was seen in the West as, okay, they've embraced our system, why it's, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, of course, Central and Eastern Europe is a very diverse place. They're different countries. But if you see the success stories, Poland, for the last 30 years, the GDP of Poland tripled. And then people said, if everything is so well, why are they voting for the governments that they're voting? Why this resentment towards the European Union? And basically, what we tried to explain were two things. Of course, in 1989, it was East Europeans, it was us, who decided we want to be like the West. But what we don't realize back then was that being an imitator is a very painful position. Being an imitator is a crisis of identity because if I want to be like you, it means that I do believe you are better than me. Secondly, for Eastern Europe, it was a major issue that you are imitating a model that is changing all the time. In 1989, many conservatives in Poland 
like the European Union because they believe that the West is a place where people go to church and basically respect traditional values. And this is not exactly what the European Union is standing for today. So all these changes created a situation in which these illiberal populist leaders don't want to be imitators. And even more, after the refugee crisis, Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, said, now you're going to imitate us. And the second thing that was totally neglected till very recently of why even individual success does not create a sense of collective success in Central and Eastern Europe, this was the demographic factor. Central and Eastern Europe is the fastest shrinking demographic part of the world, which the combination between low birth rates and a very aging population like most uh, of Europe is also combined with a high emigration rates. In places like Romania, between 2007 and 2017, 3.4 million people have left the country out of 21, 22 million. And basically 70% of them were younger than 40. And this kind of immigration is particularly visible in certain sectors of the economy, particularly healthcare, where 10,000 doctors just in the last several years have left Romania. This kind of a story created this sense of what's going to happen to us. And this sense of insecurity was very much triggered by the refugee crisis, but in a certain way, this made people say, okay, we're a very small nation, we're aging, our kids are living, our grandchildren are not speaking our language anymore, how are we going to be around in hundred years? And this fear is very strong. And it sounds like a not crazy fear, no, right? No, it's not crazy. Way. No, no, this, listen, people should understand that one of the major differences between East and West is based in the paradox of the 20th century European history. In the year 1900, there were two Europes. One was quite ethnically homogeneous, and this was Western Europe. The other was very much culturally and ethnically diverse, and this was Central Europe, the Habsburg lands. In 1939, almost one third of the population of Poland were not ethnic Poles. They were Jews, they were Ukrainians, they were Germans. And then you have revolutions, you have two old wars, you have exchange of population, you have destruction of population, and now you end up with two Europes again. One being quite now culturally and ethnically diverse, and this is Western Europe the other being very much ethnically homogeneous. And this is Central and Eastern Europe. More than 95% of the citizens of Poland are ethnic Poles. So as a result of it, this kind of change is critically important because what Central and East Europeans learned from the 20th century was that stability, political stability, state stability, is very much rooted in ethnic homogeneity. And now they're basically facing the world, which is going to diversify in order to have any economic growth Eastern Europe also should open itself for foreigners, and it is starting to do it. There are almost 2 million Ukrainians working in Poland, and when it comes to labor migration, Hungarian legislation is one of the most liberal in the European Union. So I see that the major difference now between the East and West is coming from the fact that we're going to have a diverse society on both sides, but in Eastern Europe, there are going to be a political attempt to keep the ethnic nature of the state, which means... We're going to allow foreigners to come and to work on our labor markets, but we're not going to give them pasture citizenship. Do you think it'll work? I don't believe it's going to work for a very simple reason. As a result of it, you're also going to end up with a totally dangerous generational disbalance. You're going to have a voting body which is totally tilted towards older people 
And with this type of a electoral body, you cannot increase retirement age. You cannot basically push these people to invest in the future. So as a result of it, even more younger people are going to leave. So strangely enough, in this type of a political environment, the youth is becoming the dangerous minority. They don't have the voting power. And this is why in Central and Eastern Europe, you're going to see quite a lot of young people protesting on the street because they don't have the numbers in order to make a difference on the ballot boxes. And I found this unsustainable in the long term and also self-defeating. Mm. And you had quite an interesting portrait in the book of what you call the kind of illiberal populist and where they come from, the kind of people they are, which I think also has an application beyond Central and Eastern Europe. No, listen, on one level you have traditional conservative constituencies in our country, older people, different experiences. Many of these parties are cultural parties. So from this point of view, when people talk about populism, normally they are going to talk about economic policies. There are some parties and governments, like, for example, the Polish government, which are redistributing, but I do believe that they're doing what normally in Western Europe is done by the social democratic parties. So from this point of view, there is no crazy economic politics coming from them. And Poland and Hungary also very much differ when it comes to the level of corruption. To be honest, Poland is quite a clean country. So many of these parties are very much cultural parties. They basically try to kind of defend the nation from the poisonous external influences. They try to keep the national identity in the way it is. But you have a second trend from which these illiberal governments comes, and this is the ex-liberals. For example, Mr. Orban's biography is the result of it. Somebody who entered politics with a very liberal agenda very much also generational agenda. And then his major accusation towards liberalism was, liberalism does not understand power. And his major story was, okay, what is good about liberalism is that when you're losing, not you're losing much. But the dark side of this is that when you're winning, you're not winning much. Basically, this is what Mr. Kaczynski called legal impossibilism. He basically said you cannot have a radical political change even if voters wanted it. Because they're bound by the constitution? Yeah, because you have this independent judicial system. So their major message to the public is if you want a radical change, give me enough power. Because for them, the separation of institutions is just to alibi for the elites to keep the status quo in the way it is. But what people are starting to realize very much is that when you're going to give somebody the whole power, there is no guarantees that they're going to be ready to give it back to you. Right. And the book also deals with Russia and the US. In a way, Putin, perhaps more than Orban, because he's got a bigger platform, is the most articulate and aggressive exponent of illiberalism. Maybe they never accepted liberalism, but explain to me the way in which Russia fits into this picture. Listen, the biggest problem for Russia after 1989 was that while the official narrative was that the Russians were also the winners at the end of the Cold War, and this was the official also Western narrative, we all won, Mm. the Russian people and the West. But for the Russians, it was not easy to buy this because of the economic crisis of the 1990s, because of the geopolitical irrelevance of Russia, which was very much demonstrating during the Kosovo crisis. So basically, when Putin came to power, his major message was, let's face it, we lost. We lost, but we have the right to revenge. Between 2000 and 2011, the first Putin decade, the elections were rigged, and it was not kind of secret to anybody. We know about Russia. One thing that in Russia, you're not choosing your parents and you're also not choosing your president. But the most interesting story was why President Putin was rigging elections that he was going to win if they were free and fair. 
And secondly, why he's rigging them in the way to show that everybody knows that they rigged. And for us, the most important about managed democracy, Russian style was, it was not so much faking of democracy, it was faking of management. By doing this, he was showing to the Russian population that Kremlin is in total control. And the source of the legitimacy of the regime was that nevertheless, the elections were rigged, people were not protested because they didn't see a better option. This changed in 2011, 2012, when people went on the streets in Moscow and in St. Petersburg and some of the other big urban centers. And this led to the regime change. Many people were saying, oh, the protests can lead to the regime change. But in the view of the West, the regime change was the change of President Putin. Mm. It was a regime change, but it was not the change of President Putin. It was the decision of the Russian government that they had been imitating the wrong thing, that what they should imitate is the American foreign policy to discredit the liberal order, which they saw as a threat to themselves, without the need to show any alternative. The attack was on the hypocrisy of the West. Mm. We are going to show you that you are not better than us. And as a result of it, you can see Russia basically using and annexation of Crimea was justified on the language of the human rights. When President Putin lied to the world that there were not Russian special forces in Crimea, he did it knowing very well that even the names of these people are going to be known, but he wanted to be called a liar, to say liar like you. What about the West weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? And also he said, I'm lying, so what you can do to me? So this type of a policy of mirroring the West was a provocation to show, according to the Russian leadership, the shallowness of the liberal order. And I do believe that they have achieved a lot with this. And also, was it a kind of almost emotional self-satisfaction because they felt that, you know, they were calling out the West and they'd had enough of being put in their place and lectured? Totally. Their position was pedagogical. So the major story was we want you to feel in the way we had been feeling. And from this point of view, even the interference in the American foreign policy, which started, by the way, before Trump declared that he's running, was much more the image, okay, we're a great power now, which in our definition means we can do to you what we believe you're doing to us. And this became kind of the major rationale for the Russian foreign policy. So in a way, it's, it's sort of politically, psychologically, not that surprising that Russia, which did, at least by one definition, lose the Cold War, should turn against the liberal order. Yeah. What's much more surprising is that the US turns against the liberal order, which it had sponsored. So how do you explain that? For us, it was the most interesting story. Why the imitators feel kind of humiliated is one thing, but what about the model? And paradoxically, this is what came with President Trump, who came and told the Americans, do you know what? We were not the leader of the post-Cold War world. We were the hostage. We are the major victim. He said how it happened that it was our age and that China was the biggest winner. And this understanding the victory that for you to win, all others should lose, is very critical for the Trump's view of the world. But he managed to convince the American public because he said, your jobs went to China, the American middle class is totally squeezed. It was only the American elites that succeeded and they did it by lying to you and basically going into a conspiracy with other global elites. And this was a major story because I do believe President Trump is the first American president who made something incredibly radical. He said American belief that America has a special moral purpose. This is the major America's vulnerability. So his message was America should become a normal country, more powerful than others, but not pretending to be 
better than others, and if needed, it could be nastier than others. And I do believe this is a kind of a major change because it was about identity. And strangely enough, he managed also to mobilize sentiment, which was quite popular with the American left in every period after the Vietnam War. So we are not better than others. And oddly, he's accepting exactly the Russian argument that you outlined. Exactly. And from this point, he said how different we are from the Russians. And I do believe this is a major change because you can change Trump, but it's not easy to change the mind of the American public in the way they think about America's role of the world. And this is something that I see as a kind of a general trend in the last 20 years, both in domestic and in foreign policy, where the most powerful starts to claim that they're also the biggest victim. In the same way, the bankers after the financial crisis claim that they're the biggest victim and totally treated unfairly. But of course, there is a certain truth in the fact that in the age of imitation, where everybody was imitating the West, the West lost the capacity for self-critical reflection on itself. When everybody wants to be like you, you must be perfect. And from this point of view, for the last 30 years, I do believe that the West lost one of the major advantages which the liberal democracies generally has. And this is to be totally self-critical for themselves, to be dissatisfied with their performance, to look for something better. So this is the strange story in which the victory in the Cold War, in a certain way, created a situation in which the West lost its own identity. That's it for this week, and that's it for 2019. I hope you'll join me again next year. And remember, if you don't already subscribe, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash rachmanreview. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.